Welcome to the podcast that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. Get ready to go beyond the bell. With your host, ring announcer, Sean Beckerman. The October extravaganza, known as Halloween Havoc, was a professional wrestling tradition for over a decade. For the next three installments of Beyond the Bell, your pro wrestling nostalgia podcast, we look back at some of the greatest moments of the hallowed event hosted by World Championship Wrestling. Welcome. I'm your retro wrestling party host, Sean Beckerman, ready to bring you all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. We go back in time to relive the first two years of Halloween Havoc, 1989 and 1990. From the Dynamic Dudes to the Black Scorpion, this edition covers it all. You will hear retro Audio from the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, Sting, Sid Vicious, Jim Ross, and many, many more. Halloween Havoc was my favorite WCW event. What caught my eye were all the announcers and even performers dressed up to celebrate the spooky event. Sure, I was young at the time, but it was cool to me. It seemed different. It set that event apart from all the others of the calendar year. So get ready, ghosts and goblins, after this quick break, we kick off 1989 in Halloween Havoc history. Fight TV, the cross-section of entertainment and technology. Just open the app and it will automatically connect with your smart TV. All you need to do is choose a video and press play. Download the Fight TV app for free from iTunes and Google Play. The Fight TV app is your home for everything that happens in the cage, on the mat, and between the ropes. Welcome back to Beyond the Bell. Halloween Havoc, October 28th, pay-per-view across the country. It's going to be the greatest wrestling card of all time. And let me tell you something, Samoans, I understand now there's three of you. Well, Dr. Death, the toughest man in the world, is teaming up with the Midnight Express, the men that have wrecked more homes than Hurricane Hugo, and we don't care if there's three Samoans or 30. We're going to kick you in those big, wide rear ends and send you on a raft back to Gilligan's Island, right, Doc? Ah, check the street! How about SWAT team? How would you like to open your door at Halloween and see this face? <laughs> and then the fabulous Freebirds, you're going, whoa, 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 who's the dudes? Who's the dudes? Well, the dudes know who you are, fabulous Freebirds, for the World Tag Team title at Halloween Havoc. And if you keep asking that question, brother, <laughs> then they might just sneak in there. They might just upset you. They might just surprise the wrestling world. <laughs> Halloween Havoc. Hey. Hey, dudes, uh, since Jimmy got you uh, our title shot, me and Bobby just want to say uh, lots of luck. You know, after seeing you, Terry Funk, out here 15 minutes ago, acting like the complete 
uncivilized human being that you are. A lot of people have said, first thing, have made a mistake. They finally have crossed the line. Rock! We paid the fine. We got your back in the sports. And we don't care if it's the Thunderdome, the desert, or Mars. We wanted the match. This time around, woo! It's the Thunderdome, the biggest cage in the world. Electricity, blood, guts, sweat. And the bottom line is... The bottom line is four minutes. <laughs> Woo! Two men walk away. Tell them oh, man, Nate, Woo! when you start yelling and screaming and strutting your stuff <laughs> like that, I can't stand still. I want to yell and strut my stuff too. Guess what, Thunderdome? I'm going to be beating on my chest. I got 10 million volts running through my veins. And if I grab that bar, who knows how many volts that has? And then grab you, Terry Funk, or you, the great Muna. God knows how many volts you're going to have running through you. I'll Woo! take both your hairs on both your heads. Stand up just like mine. Everybody will look just like the Stinger because every night is Halloween night for the Stinger. Terry Funk Halloween. The first moment I like to recall was Philadelphia turning on the dudes from Halloween Havoc 1989, the inaugural edition. Philadelphia has always been a city of cynics. They boo their sports teams, they turn on their heroes the instant they make a mistake, and they basically act as the complete and total antithesis of the most normal traditional crowds. I'm a New York sports fan. Therefore, in turn, I hate Philadelphia sports teams, even though I went to college in Philadelphia. You figure it out. In a city like Boston, Dallas, or San Francisco, wrestling crowds would obediently cheer the good guys and vengefully boo the heels or rule breakers. Never would they break kayfabe and openly rally behind a heel. And never would they go against the grain and jeer a fan favorite. It just didn't happen. Philly did all of these things and did them as unapologetic as humanly possible. The greatest and most famous example of this phenomena occurred at Halloween Havoc in 89 during the NWA tag team title match between the hated fabulous Freebirds and the hot young sensations, the the dynamic dudes. This kind of fits the current theme in World Wrestling Entertainment, excuse me, WWE. The Dynamic Dudes were a Jim Hurd creation aimed to capitalize on the success of pretty boy tag teams like the Rock and Roll Express and the WWF's Rockers. In theory, they bring a large vocal female fan base to arenas and draw well with the men on top of it. Unfortunately, the Dudes were the most generic, unappealing tag team that Anyone, you could say, has ever seen. Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace were chosen for this ridiculous gimmick based on their boyish good looks and flowing blonde hair. Yes, Mr. Laurinaitis, Executive Vice President of Talent Relations, was a dynamic dude. They danced to the ring as horrible rock music played, wearing pink tights and making corny California hand signals. They'd also bring skateboards to the ring. Yes, fans, I said it. Skateboards to the ring. 
despite having absolutely no use for them whatsoever. They were dudes. I could understand the point of their inclusion if they skateboarded it out or maybe popped on or popped in an ollie in the middle of the ring, but they didn't. And thus the skateboard served no practical purpose whatsoever except to make them look quote unquote dynamically cool. To completely hammer home the gimmick, the dudes would ascend the turnbuckles, frisbees in hand, not just skateboards, my friends, frisbees, and throw the circular plastic toys to kids in the crowd. No, it was not the genius Lanny Poffo, they were the dynamic dudes. It was enough to induce vomiting. Because they were baby faces, though, the country sat idly by and half-heartedly cheered these moronic characters. It was absolutely pathetic. Not Philly, though. On this particular night in October, Philadelphia turned on the dynamic dudes into the most hated wrestling entity since Kevin Sullivan worshipped the devil. The dudes fought the fabulous Freebirds, who were at the time the most hated team in the NWA. They were arrogant, southern rockers who had both a penchant for a bad rock music and two unquestionably flabby physiques. You can call them flabby. You can call them not built. They looked average wrestlers. Michael Hayes was a, a big built guy, but not a jacked up muscular guy like a Lex Luger at the time. The dudes were these good looking two, the two really built good looking guys. The fabulous Freebirds got the loudest babyface pop of the night while the dudes were greeted with downright hostility from the future ECW fan base. Philadelphia booed every move Shane Douglas and Johnny Ace made. The Philadelphia Civic Center, mother, father, and child alike, all stood throughout the match and delivered deafening chants of You Suck! before Kurt Angle was even involved in wrestling towards the dudes, while chanting Freebirds at the top of their lungs. It really was an amazing sight. The dynamic dudes looked like a deer in headlights. They, the more they tried to ignore the situation and act as babyfaces, the more venomous the crowd became that enticed the Philadelphia fan base. It was downright hilarious, fans. Look back at it on YouTube. It was funny. At the 10-minute mark, the Freebirds blatantly broke the rules. They received massive amounts of cheers for that and went on to pin Johnny Ace, Executive Vice President for Talent Relations, to a reaction similar to the reaction that your local team would get for winning the World Series. The Dynamic Dudes were destroyed by the Freebirds. The Philly crowd continued with the heel-face roll reversals for many of the other matches, but nothing could come close to comparing to their complete and total hatred of the Dynamic Dudes. Five times referee of the year, Tommy Young. Tommy Young's a great official, but hey, there's only so much a guy can do when you got the five count to play with. And the Freebirds know how to use all five counts. As a tag team, nobody works it better than do the Freebirds. As you say, they know how to use all the five counts. They know how to work everything that the referee can do. That carries them a long way in the ring. Tag made now. Here comes Michael Hayes. Johnny fighting back. 
should make a tag. He had a chance to make the tag, and he didn't do it. I think that was a mistake. Came back, came back very strong, but now he's in trouble again. Over in the corner of the Freebird. Long way across the ring. what they do in the ring. you got to respect that. They know what to do. They know how to keep their opponent away from his partner. Watch out. Hayes was tagged in. They did it all within the referee's five count. And the crowd wants the DDT. Well, they did it here. He's going to give it to him. No, he doesn't. Johnny. And it, Cornette's got these guys scouted perfectly because Johnny blocked the DDT, which most men don't have the preparation to do. I'm trying to think back. I don't recall when the last time I saw somebody blocking. He made the tag. Shane, the fresh man and the legal man with gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. The elevation, up to the lights. Goes one half of the world tag team champions. The youngster from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the native, on fire here. from Halloween Havoc 1989. Lex Luger, the NWA United States Champion, was fresh off a killer heel turn and was arguably the hottest bad guy in wrestling by the time October of 1989 rolled around. The crowd loved to hate the narcissistic before he came to the WWF, Total Package, who demeaned the fans, ran down the baby faces, and arrogantly admired his own massive physique. Meanwhile, Brian Pillman was setting the NWA on fire with his pretty boy looks, innovative offense, and fiery charisma. Less than a year into his run, he was already getting some of the loudest cheers in the promotion and winning new fans over left and right with his daredevil style. This was before the time bomb, the ticking time bomb, Pillman, took place. In fact, if it weren't for Pillman, the high-flying, lightweight style of wrestling he came to be known for might never have been taken hold in America to the extent that it did. You can make a claim for that very easily. The match had no real backstory, very little build, and no corny gimmicks. Repeat that, no corny gimmicks, no skateboards, no frisbees. Wrestling. Wrestling. I sound like CM Punk now. 
But even without that nonsense, both men absolutely tore the house down on this particular evening in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I know the popular net trend in the last few years has been to say that Luger is one of the worst workers in wrestling history. But if you take the time to watch some of his his work from 88 to 91, look back, fans, trust me on this, with Flair, Wyndham, Sting, Steamboat, Muda, and Pillman, you'd be surprised at just how good Luger used to be for what he was. All right? I'm... I'm making that note for what he was. He was good at that time, that three-year stretch. Sure, he was usually carried by a more experienced opponent, but Luger always held up to his end of the deal extremely extremely well during this time period. If he was around, this, if he came about to this day, you know, he's a well, massively built guy, the total package, um, and he would do, I think he'd do pretty well. You put him on, like, say, a SmackDown because he didn't have necessarily the greatest mic skills, but he did, similar to Allah, you could say Batista. Batista, you would say, maybe had more ability than Luger, but Batista had great matches, but you could say it was carried by experienced superstars that he competed with. And Luger can kind of be compared to that. You can hate me if you want, my opinion. In something that you'll never see today, Luger and Pillman wrestled a fairly straightforward, interference-free <clears throat> TNA 20-minute match with the main plot line being that of a clean-cut babyface versus crooked heel as opposed to the more contemporary plot line of abusive father against squawky, decidedly butch daughter or necrophilia or someone sleeping with someone's wife or nonsense like that stuff you'd see written by crazy writers in typically in a well and you could say in a typical philadelphia fashion the crowd was split right down the middle with half cheering for pillman and the remainder screaming their lungs out for the heelish luger the match was a work-rate lover's dream, with non-stop action and little to no rest holds applied, which is pretty good for a Luger match. Pillman soared through the air, injury-free, and Luger used offense that you'd never think the total package would be capable of if judging him by his later standards. Pillman and Luger exchanged chops hard enough to make Chris Jericho wince. And they waged war over sunset flips and delivered a match that still holds up if gauged by today's standards. Luger won cleanly with a modified stun gun, retaining the championship, drawing a massive face pop, and ending a match that I have no qualms about giving it, you could say, four and a half stars out of five. You can give this rating four to four and a half stars out of five, I think, easily because of how they got the crowd into the match. Go back and look. A surprisingly decent match by the total package. Bigger ego than this man either. Lex Loser. Well, that's what a lot of fans hope for tonight, that he loses the United States Heavyweight Championship. I know that several members of the Cincinnati Bengals watching this broadcast cheering for their man, Flying Brian, the kamikaze of the Suicide Squad. He was a wedge buster.
lungs. And what they're saying to him, he's allowing Flying Brian to get some more oxygen That's in those lungs. Again, he's not wrestling a very smart man. If he can... He's wrestling a great one, but it's not a smart one.
Luger had enough of presence of thought when he saw Brian up there to get out of the way, and he did it very quickly, just when he was in the air. No way Brian could change the course. Luger going for the dance here. This could arguably be the greatest match in Halloween Havoc history. And it comes on the inaugural edition, the inaugural event of Halloween Havoc in 1989. As October of 89 approached, the NWA was at an all-time high, both creatively and inside the squared circle. Nature Boy Ric Flair and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat had spent the better half of the year engaged engaged in what many consider to be the greatest feud in professional wrestling history. Terry Funk worked his way into the equation by attacking Ric Flair at WrestleWar, pile-driving him through a table, putting him on the shelf for months, and in the process, turning the company's number one heel into the largest babyface draw. Meanwhile, Sting and the Great Muda were putting on groundbreaking matches still talked about to this very day. All of these feuds were set to come to a boil at the inaugural Halloween Havoc pay-per-view in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. As previously mentioned, the NWA's booking during and preceding this pay-per-view will go down in history as some of the greatest in professional wrestling history. Sure, Dusty's tainted finishes brought things down for everyone and damaged tremendously uh, out of a few cities that they performed in, but the storyline themselves, as well as the sheer work ethic and genius possessed by the NWA's big six, meaning Flair, Funk, Steamboat, Luger, Muda, and Sting at the time, made NWA in 1989 one of the top, top organizations in the world over in Japan and quite frankly, competing with the WWF with Hulk Hogan at the helm. Ric Flair and Terry Funk had been feuding for the better part of the year. And more specifically, they've been waging war ever since Flair's return to action at the Great American Bash. It was entitled Glory Days in Baltimore, Maryland. The feud was still red hot and the NWA fans were reveling in the chance they had waited so long for to cheer the nature boy. Meanwhile, Sting and the Great Muda were putting on mind-blowing matches that were easily five years ahead of their time. Easily. Certain circles of the net still talk about their series of matches in the same breath as Flair Luger classics of a year earlier. In a move designed to keep heat on both feuds, yet build towards Halloween Havoc, Ric Flair and the Great Muda began fighting on the house show circuits, as did Sting and Funk. Through interviews, run-ins, and NWA hype, the main feuds were able to retain a lot of heat while the mini-feuds played themselves out across the country and lent even more credence to the notion that Halloween Havoc would truly be something special. All four of these feuds came ahead in the main event of Halloween Havoc of 1989, the match Thunder Cage, a large, ominous cage, the same one used 
earlier in the year at Capital Combat, towering a legitimate 25 feet in the air would house the four combatants. The roof was slanted inwards to keep the wrestlers in and the outsiders out. There was one final catch. The cage was electrified. If an opponent tried to escape, the top of the cage would give them enough of a jolt to convince them that maybe it wasn't in their best interest to go any higher. Unlike other corny WCW gimmicks, this one worked. Maybe it's the rose-colored glasses of nostalgia that we may possess over the years, or possibly us having our minds play tricks on each other, but the electrified cage gimmick never came across as particular as particularly absurd. You can yell at me for that as well, fans. You can say it was necessary in order to keep all those not involved in the match from entering the cage. This could have been a precursor to Hell in the Cell, you can say. To further hammer home the electric cage concept, a rigid Fire was actually ignited early into the match near the top of the cage to give that feel like this was serious business. Referee Tommy Young, world-class referee Tommy Young, immediately put the fire out. But unfortunately, from what we've come to know and, and hear, he injured himself very badly in the process. For the next 20 minutes, all four men gave every ounce they had, battled for their lives, endured some brutal bumps, and in the process put on what was quite simply the greatest match in Halloween Havoc history. And you could say arguably. Sting dove from the cage walls into the ring. Ric Flair and Terry Funk exchanged absolutely vicious chops 10 feet in the air on the cage. Special guest referee Bruno Sammartino did everything in his power to keep order. So much happened in this match, but... I don't want to spoil it for you fans if you yet to see it. Go check on YouTube. We'll play a clip after. But you can check the full match on YouTube if you like. Or uh, I love a compilation for WWE to release, uh, Best of Halloween Havoc. This has to be on it. You could just say that the 20 minutes of, or the match was 20 minutes of the most explosive action many of these fans or you fans out there have ever seen. The storyline was great, the execution was great, and the match was amazing, considering the hokiness or corniness of the cage theme. Sting and Flair won, of course, but that's besides the point. Hunt this match down, fans. Find it. Not only was it the first main event in Halloween Havoc history, but it was also the best match in the short life of the epic event. Muda says that's all for Sting. As Flair... And Funk continue to beat each other to a pulp. Watch Muda. Watch Muda on top. Oh, Lord. Well, if they have a boys' choir in Tokyo, he'll be a tenor. Yes, sir. And here comes a figure four from Flair. There it is. As you said, on that leg, Jim. What do you call that one? Shaking his head and saying, no, no way.
tremendous conclusion to this event, but that's certainly not without some controversy, Bob. Jim, you're 100% right. I'm still not so sure that Hart meant to throw that in. I think it may have been by an accident. I think he got hit. Ole Anderson, I think, when, when he and Gary Hart both went climbing into the ring and they collided over there, it looked like that towel went flying out of the hand of Gary Hart. Well, right here was the beginning of the downfall. Gary Hart was going to let Terry Funk's leg just get snapped like a twig. And after a succession, a big splash is off the top rope by Sting with Flair holding a figure four. Here came Muda. Muda trying to chop Bruno. Watch this. Boom. That's a right hand from a bruisey Italy. Boy, and you're talking about right now. Let's see if we can see what happened. As again, Flair had that figure four, and he had it locked in, and he really was putting the pressure to it. Now, there is... When, when Hart went to, went to go down, you saw that arm come up, and there went that towel, Jim. And when Bruno had no alternative but to end the match because Ole Anders has got his towel in his hand, and the only other towel out there was from Gary Hart. So what a physical situation we have seen. The electrified top of the cage came into play on two or three occasions. And the winners, Flair and Sting. What a matchup. Oh, Jim, I tell you. And you know, I got to go back a little bit earlier to the confrontation again between Ric Flair and Terry Funk. You know, I don't think this thing can stop and I don't think it can end here. One of these guys... Something's got to happen to him and happen bad with this tremendous hatred they have for each other to the end. Well, I'll tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. We, we have seen so much here tonight. We thought it would be the night that uh, Fly and Brian will be able to take it to Lex Luger and become the new United States Heavyweight Champion. It did not work out that way for Fly and Brian, but uh, there'll be better days for him because he gave Luger quite a test. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But, Jim, I think you and I both agreed Luger. What a tremendous specimen that he is. Tremendous future ahead of him. Championship. I think untold championships ahead for Luger. Hey, you're talking about great matches. Hey, what about that? What about the Warriors and what about the skyscrapers, Jim? Well, you know, the Road Warriors came here wanting to become the first team to pin the undefeated skyscrapers. They did not accomplish that particular goal, but they did walk out of here with a, a no disqualification victory. But I think that it's uh, be very safe to say that uh, the Road Warriors certainly uh, have not seen the last of the skyscrapers and vice versa. You know, Bob, we, we do appreciate so much the fans joining us on pay-per-view. We'll be having our post-game yep. show with Lance Russell and Joe Pettacino and many special guests. You can call 1-900-909-9900. I'm about to lose my voice. It's a great night. But fans, we want to remind you that our next pay-per-view spectacular will be Starcade 89 from our home base in the Omni in Atlanta on Wednesday night, December the 13th. And we'll be having some major announcements in upcoming days about the most unique Starcade of all. Jim, you know... Every time, it just gets better and better and better. Hey, next is going to top it, I'm sure of that. Starcade 89 is the granddaddy of them all, and that's going to happen on Wednesday night, December the 13th, uh, from the Omni in Atlanta. Uh, oh, you hope that this cable company will be carrying that event as well. You fans, we certainly appreciate you allowing us to come into your yeah. home. We've seen some great action. The dynamic dudes came very close, but the Freebirds are still the greatest team. I wonder if Cornette's uh, problems with the midnight had a, had a factor on that. Well, and I tell you, we may not have seen the end of that either. You know, I think that's something that uh, we got to look forward to in the future to see just how that's going to pan out. Ladies and gentlemen, for Chris Cruz, Gordon Soley, and Bob Connell, I'm Jim Ross. Thanks very much, and so long from Philadelphia.
Ric Flair, the Steiners, and more. Ooh, I got a charge out of that. How about you, Sid Vicious? Me? How we have is going to be one nightmare you'll never forget. <laughs> neither will you. That brings us to Halloween Havoc 1990. The Midnight Express versus Tommy Rich and Richard Morton. This is where the historical significance factor starts to work its way into this series. You can say other matches may have been much better in terms of pure wrestling, possibly in Halloween Havoc in 1998, but when looking at the big picture, it just couldn't compare to the importance of this tag team matchup. The very last match that the Midnight Express ever wrestled together in a major promotion. The Midnight Express, along with the Rock and Roll Express, revolutionized American tag team wrestling, taking what was once a gimmick match and turning it into a true art form. The Midnight Express were the greatest tag team in the world for years, but truly became something of legend, or what legends are made of, when Jim Cornette, Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton came together permanently. I love the new formation of the Midnight Express. I like Stan Lane. I thought he was more charisma, uh, charismatic, being added into the mixture with Bobby Eaton, who was a little bit more bland. But it gave some nice dynamics, and having Jim Cornette in there as a the mouthpiece was unforgettable. Bobby and Stan were just incredible to watch. It was as if they shared one mind. They communicated with each other through eye contact and secret hand signals in order to always be on the same page. Go back and watch tapes, and you'll have a hard time even picking up their signals. Yet you'll notice that they were just always dead on, no matter the circumstance. While the Road Warriors may have been more feared... Arn and Tully may have been more technically gifted, and the Rock and Roll Express may have been more popular with the ladies. No single tag team in wrestling history has ever been as succinct, connected, and seamless as the Midnight Express. When Jim Cornette and Stan Lane left over creative differences and formed Smoky Mountain Wrestling, the greatest duo to ever step foot in the ring together finally went their separate ways. While still a great match, the Midnight Express's final battle at Halloween Havoc 1990 just couldn't come close to comparing to the, to the legacy the team left behind. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to World Championship Wrestling. In just a few moments, I'm going to invite the heavyweight champion of the world, Sting, to come out here to the ring. But before we do, we've already heard from the Black Scorpion once in our first hour, but let's hear these comments from the mysterious Black Scorpion. I know, Sting, that it must be difficult for you to visualize an opponent that you know nothing about. I've given you clues, and you still can't figure out who the Black Scorpion is. But you've already seen what I'm capable of. So remember, when you meet me in the ring, I will be going for you, for your life. Get ready, Sting. I'm coming. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming the World Championship Wrestling here on TBS, the heavyweight championship of the world, Sting!
ladies and gentlemen, to spend a few moments with a heavyweight champion of the world. I know the Black Scorpion is weighing heavily on your mind, but you have a date with destiny on October the 27th, Halloween Havoc, when you will wrestle Sid Vicious for the heavyweight championship of the world. Rossi, as if I don't have enough on my mind already, thinking about the Black Scorpion, and now the almighty Sid Vicious wants a piece of me for the world title, Rossi. As a matter of fact, hey, wait a minute now. Hold on. Let's keep this civil. Hey, Sid, we don't have to wait till Halloween Havoc. We can do it now. Come on now. We don't do it now. Hold on here. Hold on here. Let's do it now. Let's keep our composure and finish the interview. Get up here. We don't have to wait, Sid. We can do it now. Listen, we don't. Let's let's wait here. Hold on. Shoot off your mouth in the ring. Hold on here. Hold on. Hey, wait a minute. Steve, Steve, there's a black scorpion. An imposter sting from Halloween Havoc 1990. As Halloween Havoc 1990 approached, Sting was deeply involved in his feud with the Black Scorpion. Unfortunately, no suitable Scorpion existed. So WCW had to go with Plan B, or maybe it was Z, who knows, until they could get their heads out of their behinds and decide who would best fit the part of the creepy magician. Meanwhile, Sid Vicious was arguably the hottest heel in WCW at the time, drawing massive babyface cheers despite being a part of the hated Four Horsemen stable. Regardless of his heelish ties, Sid's combination of size, charisma, and wacky catchphrases, I rule the world, were more than enough to endear himself to many fans, both casual and smart alike. Due to process of elimination, more than anything else, Sid was plugged into an intermediary feud with Sting. Primarily so Sting would have a hot challenger at the upcoming Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. Although the bout looked great on paper, one major problem existed. Neither man could afford to lose the match. Sting was the company's number one babyface at the time, and despite weak gates at recent house show events, was still the most valuable wrestler to WCW at the time, and still needed the WCW title around his waist, in order to even attempt to salvage the Black Scorpion fiasco. On the flip side of things, Sid Vicious was picking up steam by the day, a la Goldberg, and all in WCW knew that it was only a matter of time before the belt was around his waist. Because he ruled the world. He couldn't afford to be pinned cleanly by a man much smaller than himself. The two squared off live from Chicago, Illinois, at the second annual Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. Knowing that neither man could be allowed a clean pinfall on one another, Ole Anderson came up with yet another crazy way to mess things up and screw the paying customer out of each and every penny out of their hard-earned money and hard-earned pockets that they plunked down for the show. His solution? 
A fake sting, why not? Near the end of the match, both men fought back to the entranceway. The first sign that something right happened when both men wrestled into the back, yet the cameras were, quote-unquote, unable to follow them. Why? The second sign that something was wrong was, of course, when a man looking nothing like Sting, it was Barry Windham, waddled out of the ring and allowed Sid to pin him. For a fleeting moment, it appeared as if a new NWA WCW World Heavyweight Champion had been crowned. Before the party got underway, though, Sting came running from the backstage area with tape still hanging from his body. Apparently, the horseman had jumped him in the back, tied him down, and sent out Wyndham in his place. Those dastardly horsemen. Sting had enough of the this craziness, this absolute harshness, this treachery by the horseman and quickly rolled up Sid Vicious for the victory, although it was admitted, admittedly tainted. The ending made a lot of people mad, including Turner executives, and Oli's booking, made to look stupid, would come to cost him his job a few months later. Credit where credit's due. He's pumped up and he's ready physically for this match. I'll even say this. He might be ready for sin physically, but mentally, what effect has the Black Scorpion had on Sting tonight? That is a mental situation. That is something that only time will tell in this contest. Sting is in the best physical shape of his life, as is his partner, Sid, his opponent, rather, Sid Vicious. Look at the size difference. Look how much bigger Sid is. And the stinger, oh, he turned his back. The emotion of the moment got in the way there. He turned his back. Sid misses with a clothesline. Big high cross body by Sting, but Sid catches him like a small child. And the stinger's 250. At least, and a backbreaker. But the stinger up. The adrenaline must be riveting through his body. Single leg pick up by Sting. Going for the figure four. And Vicious goes to the ropes. Sid goes outside the ring. Now this is going to have to frustrate the heavyweight champion of the world. And the more he can frustrate Sting, the less concentration Sting's going to have. Photographers from around the country, there's Dennis Brandt, the editor of the wrestling wrap-up here from around the world. And now Vicious rakes the eyes. Can you believe the size of the challenger? Six feet, nine inches tall, 330 pounds. Ladies and gentlemen, not an ounce of fat on this phenomenal specimen. He missed that clothesline. His momentum took him all the way over the top, and Stinger follows him out very quickly. Sting's good friend, Lex Luger. Losing the United States Heavyweight Championship. And could history repeat itself here? But many have said that Sid is the favorite in this match. As it's rammed into the steel post by the Stinger. The champion of the world. But notice Vicious gets back into the ring. He doesn't want to count out here. Sid wants this match to happen in the ring. Horseman learned earlier tonight if you're outside the ring you can't win the title. Wrist lock applied by... Sting, the heavyweight champion. He won the world's heavyweight championship at the Great American Bash on July the 7th of this year in Baltimore. On February the 6th of this year, he had major, he hurt his knee, 
thanks to the horseman and major reconstructive surgery. Vicious. Went for the big shoulder block. Sting quickly moves out of the way. So this year has been a very memorable year for the world's champion. He had to, it took him six months approximately to rehabilitate his knee. And then on his first match back in one-on-one -on -one competition, he beat perhaps the greatest world champion of all time to win the title. Hey, I'm not taking anything away from this guy. I think he's in great condition. I think he has more courage than anybody in history since Oliver North. But the thing is, Sid Vicious is on a tear, and Sting cannot concentrate solely on Vicious. That's his motivation right there. Little kids with that paint on their face. Little kids that write this guy and get answers back. Kids that get their autograph signed. That's his motivation. He's an outstanding role model for any youngster watching this, this event anywhere in the country. Yeah, but how much effect can the kids have on his mind when the Black Scorpion does what he does? I mean, this guy was there, then he wasn't there. I mean, you know, it has me confused. And if it has me confused, then you confused. Imagine what it's doing to Sting. Sid Vicious went for that headlock. Good kick up. And Vicious caught him with a clothesline downstairs. He may have knocked the breath out of the champion right there. Senior referee Nick Patrick assigned this contest. Four horsemen. Four horsemen. Rule. Vicious with a kick on the back of the head. Now has slowed it down. He is a power wrestler personified. His power bomb, his version of a of a body slam. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, but he calls it the power bomb. Really is a devastating maneuver. The stinger, of course, has his stinger splash and the scorpion deathlock. Sid needs to keep on working on Sting. He needs to intimidate him here. That's what he's doing. He's not only beating him physically, he needs to beat him mentally. Sting up and over with a quick move, a vicious wide base looking to his legs. Wide base by the 6'9 giant. And Sting now cut him off guard. One, two, and vicious powered out. And Sid right back up. Gets him with another clothesline. Puts the heavyweight champion of the world on his back. Vicious on top, tried to lock his hands, grapevine the leg, but Sting kicked out. Vicious working on the trapezius muscle. One of the muscles that is damaged by the power bomb. It's not just the lower back and the spinal cord, it's the traps, it's your entire backside of your body. Look at the strength, look at the size, it's vicious. Nothing stops Sid, this guy's on a tear, man. Like the Reds winning the series four to nothing. Nobody thought that would happen either, but it did. Sid coming back from a punctured lung. This guy is just as courageous as Sting. He's one of the horsemen. And he's one of the dirtiest players in the game. Still working on that claw hold, a new weapon in the repertoire of Sid Vicious, something Sting has not seen from this big man, and neither have we. He's got great strength, obviously, in his forearms and his and his hands Sting fights back with his left going downstairs on Vicious Vicious so reverses it with that great strength and got him up what a power slam by the challenger he's going for it this is it Sting his shoulder is up and now Vicious choking the champion of the world 
Think about it now. Sting's sitting here. He's looking up at a challenger six foot nine. He's coming off that surgery that he had back in June. Think, I mean, just, just his friend Lex Luger loses the U.S. heavyweight title. The Black Scorpion tonight. This guy's mind can't be on the match. And it has to be against Sid. Sting laid on the top rope there. Vicious buries that big knee into the ribcage area. You can see the size difference. And remember, Sting is six feet, two and a half, 250 pounds. Vicious, 6'9", 330, a monster. Big clubbing forearm on the heavyweight champion, but Sting reverses the Irish whip, sets, here comes the Stinger Splash, but nobody there. Vicious had it well scouted. That was the Stinger Splash, and all he found was turnbuckle. Right up here above our monitor, the champion in a lot of trouble now. Right above us. Vicious measures him, kneels him with that forearm right across the pectoral region. Pulls back on his neck. Referee exercising his count. Vicious has a count of four to break the hole. Sid, don't turn your back, Sid. Don't turn your back. Sting on top. High cross body. Will he get him here? But he kicked out at one. What strength by Vicious, and he's right back on top of the champion. Sid right back on top, making a cardinal mistake, turning his back on Sting, but Sid recovering him from his mistakes, what all great champions must learn to do. He has the physical tools and the physical abilities to overcome a mistake like that. A lesser athlete would have been pinned there. Now the champion of the world being tested. The fatigue factor sooner or later has to become one of the determining factors in this match. Sting has taken a lot of punishment. He has been pounded and hammered on by this big giant who outweighs the champion some 75 pounds. Oh, Sting's out. Close line on the apron. I have never seen Sid so ready. This is on top. But Sting kicks out. The champion will not quit. I will assure you one thing. He may lose this championship, but he will lose it fighting. He will not quit. I can assure you that. He is a fighting champion. He has overcome too much already here in 1990 to quit now. He will not do it. These youngsters that ride him, these youngsters that see him in the arenas around the country, they are his motivation. And it's those very youngsters that are Sid's motivation because he feeds off their tears. They just went for the elbow, but the champion alertly rolled out of the way. And now how much does he have left to muster some offense? He missed the elbow himself as Vicious quickly moves out of the way. For a super heavyweight, he's very, very quick. Sting fights back with that kick. With a flurry here. Kicking him with all he's got. And taking one Sid straight down. Sting with a hair. Using it for leverage. But he took the challenger straight down. Oh, he caught him in the face with that size 16. Now Sid wants to keep him in the ring. Sid needs to keep Sting in the ring right now because he has him worn down. He has him at a point. Wham! Close line on the runway area. Bring him back into the ring, Sid. This is where you got your chance. Sid Vicious measuring the champion. The referee trying to get him to 
Why is Sid taking him away from the ring? You need to fight him back. He's punishing here, and the referee, Nick Patrick, trying to get them both back in the ring. The fans here do not want to see a count out. They do not want to see a disqualification. They want to see the let the better man win. I think that's good officiating on the part of Nick Patrick. Sting is up. The champion is up. But the champion up and over. What a move by the champ. Stomping away at Vicious. Standing drop kick. Vicious outside. Vicious outside. And Sting up and over. High cross body over the top rope to the floor. Right hand by the champion of the world. Why is Sid going away from the ring? Wait a minute, there's a horseman. The horsemen are here. Sting, don't turn your back on Sid. Sid, why is it why is Sid leaving the ring area? He can't win the title unless he's in the ring. What are the horsemen doing out here? I don't like the looks of this situation. Nick Patrick needs to get, we need more referees or security or somebody. Get Anderson and Flair out of here. What? Sting and Sting and up. Sid are fighting down the aisle toward the dressing room area. Wait a minute. No. Oh, see, Sid brought him back into the ring. Sid got him right back to the ring. Oh. He got him up. He got him. He got one, two. He got it. Why well, got him? What is he it? Got it. He got the boat. Sid got the boat. Brothers versus the Nasty Boys from Halloween Havoc 1990. As much as 
one would love WCW and hold its memories and moments very close to one's heart. It would pain you to have to preface almost every single one of those great Havoc moments with a comment on how badly WCW would go on to screw up a potentially great thing. This situation, unfortunately, would prove to be no different. Appearing seemingly out of nowhere, two legitimate tough guys from the dingy streets of North Tampa burst onto the Florida independent wrestling scene in the late 80s. These two men, known collectively as the Nasty Boys, they would go on to dominate Florida tag teams, the division, like no team has ever done, destroying every wrestler in their path. Within a year and a half, the prestigious Florida Tag Team Championship titles, held formerly by such legendary teams as Jerry and Jack Briscoe, Dory and Terry Funk, Hiro Matsuda and Tim Mr. Wrestling Woods, and Jose Lothario and Argentina Apollo, had been captured five times by the thuggish Nasty Boys. They were violent, unique, marketable. They were the, you could say, competent in the ring, and most importantly, they really knew how to piss off the crowd. Needless to say, it didn't take long for WCW higher-ups to catch wind of this duo that was dominating Southern Tag Team Wrestling, and in mid-1990, the call finally came from Dusty Rhodes. He wanted them in WCW. He wanted them to immediately come in and feud with what many people from America to Japan considered to be the greatest tag team in pro wrestling history, the Steiner Brothers. Upon entering WCW, the Nasty Boys wasted little time in making good on Dusty's wishes. Both teams immediately developed profound hatred for one another, and it became increasingly obvious that a title match between these two teams was a foregone conclusion. The match was set to take place at the second annual WCW Halloween Havoc pay-per-view live from Chicago, Illinois, but the Nasty Boys wanted wanted to make sure the Steiners never even made it to the pay-per-view. Two weeks prior to Halloween Havoc, the contract signing between the Steiners and Nasties was set to take place at a house show in Cobb County, Georgia. The big boss man was there in attendance. TV cameras were on standby in case anything were to break out that that night at the small yet historic Civic Center. Needless to say, all hell broke loose. Not surprisingly. The Nasty Boys were the first to sign the contracts, arrogantly threatening the Steiners and promising them that there was no way they would leave Chicago with their U.S. Tag Team Championships or their health, for that matter. The Steiners jawed right back, of course, with the dog-faced gremlin in charge, and officials had to separate the two teams that the Steiners, so that basically the Steiners could sign the contracts. As the Steiners were handing the signed contracts over to WCW officials, the Nasty Boys bum-rushed them and gave them the beating of a lifetime. The thuggish Nasties knocked Rick and Scott Steiner out cold with the tag team titles, busting them wide open in the process. To put the final punctuation mark on the assault, Jerry Sags picked up Scott Steiner and up and drove him straight through the table that was used for the contract signing. This was before ECW, fellas. Which I say, fellas, like Seamus. The crowd was absolutely stunned as the year was 1990 and most have never seen anything remotely as violent as this and they witnessed this extreme action by the Nasties. The Steiner brothers were hurt. 
There was no doubt about that. But unfortunately for the Nasty Boys, they were now incredibly pissed off. All of the violent heat and all of the mounting tension came to a head in Chicago at Halloween Havoc of 1990. The match not only exceeded the hype, but also served to make the careers of two previously unheard of Florida punks, quote-unquote. From the minute the bell sounded, both teams came out slugging, as most Nasty Boys matches take place, there's usually slugging involved. With all four men exchanging hammers and just pounding the absolute snot out of each other, Scott Steiner reversed a Jerry Sags superplex into a top rope belly-to-belly suplex, creating mass hysteria from the crowd in attendance. Brian Knobs was dropped straight on his head, and I mean straight, and it continued, and all hell still continued to break loose. Out of nowhere, amid all the chaos, Scott picked up Sags. He picked them back up and put them on his shoulders as Rick Steiner came flying off the top rope with the Bulldog, their signature maneuver. It was complete and total insanity. Bodies continued to fly everywhere as the action got more intense by the second. Rick missed a clothesline and went flying out of the ring, allowing the Nasties the opportunity to nearly spike drive Scott Steiner's skull through the canvas. Rick Steiner took offense and just blasted Jerry Sags over the head with a chair. Oh, he blasted him. Immediately, blood was just everywhere dripping, and the match grew even more intense. You felt it within the, within the building. Eventually, the brawl erupted to the floor, allowing Scott Steiner to pull Nobs back in, hit the Frankensteiner, and marginally escape with the tag team titles. The crowd erupted, cheering an amazing match and celebrating what was sure to be a long, epic feud. Bill Apter and PWI called it one of the greatest tag team wrestling matches in American history. Dave Meltzer and the Wrestling News Observer gave the match rave review. Old school WCW fans loved it. WCW had a golden opportunity to push this feud into the stratosphere and make some extensive money with this feud. And as I'm sure as you can guess, they messed it up royally. Common sense would seem to dictate that if a major wrestling promotion was going to put a massive amount of time, money, and confidence in a tag team in attempting to push them over to main event status, they would be sure to sign them to a contract to make sure a rival promotion didn't sweep the tag team out from under them and capitalize on all their hard work. Of course, WCW didn't actually do this. Of course. Thus, less than a month after WCW had taken two nobodies from Tampa and transformed them into the hottest tag team in wrestling, the WWF simply called the Nasty Boys up, offered them a few more dollars, and took them right from under the nose of World Championship Wrestling. It was an absolute nightmare for WCW, and further strengthened the, their stigma of disorganization and stupidity at the time. But it's not enough, and Nobbs runs him right back into the turnbuckle. Nobbs knows he has to turn up the heat right here, whatever game plan they had, they got to put it into motion now, because one nasty boy is badly hurt. Yeah, I think he's going to be all right, he's back up on the apron. He may be a little clear, maybe Here he wrong, comes. but he's going to be all right. These guys are tough. Knobs holding on to make sure that Scott Steiner doesn't make the tag. Again, Rick Steiner comes in. Ripley Mike Atkins doing a lot of discretionary officiating because this one has been the birds of being out of control on more than one occasion. And there's the Boston Crab. Working on the lower back. Pressure deliberately on the lower back. 
guy is busted open and it doesn't even bother him. Notice that. Doesn't even bother him. They're, they're not afraid of him. And Scott's going to power out. Look at his arm. Look at the strength of Scott Steiner. And he flips him over. But he's phenomenal strength of his legs. And Jerry Sachs again tags in Brian Knob. And they prevent Scott Steiner from making the tag to his big brother, Rick Steiner. Camel, camel clutch. Working on the lower back. You know, everybody in World Championship Wrestling has always been so afraid of the Steiner brothers because they're mean, because they're rough and they're tough. The nasty boys aren't afraid of them. They eat beer for breakfast and come back for more. Scott Steiner. Big Ten champion at the University of Michigan. One of that new breed of athletes coming into The final moment in the part one edition of the Halloween Havoc Memories will involve the rise of the Scorpion from Halloween Havoc of 1990. With Sting's coronation at the Great American Bash came the ending of the greatest era in the history of the NWA, quite arguably. From the mid-80s through the heyday of the Horsemen in the late 80s, to the greatest year any promotion has ever experienced in 1989, to the epic battles that 1990 saw between Ric Flair and Lex Luger, Ricky Steamboat, and Sting, the NWA took us all on the ride of a lifetime and battled head-to-head, quite honestly, with the World Wrestling Federation in a time period when the perception of competition was a taboo subject by both companies. As unfortunate as it is, the old saying tends to ring true time and time again. All things from this point forward, WCW started its gradual transition from old school mentality to new school sports entertainment would come true. What followed was what will undoubtedly go down in history as the single worst angle in the history of wrestling. And this can be paralleled with the Shockmaster. This may go above the Shockmaster angle because of the longevity and time spent on the angle and the actual payoff at the end. The Shockmaster was a one-minute blow-off blooper that didn't really affect business that much, you could say. Before we go to Sting's comments about Sid Vicious. Jim, quickness and agility right here pays off. As you say, the karate kick, it was right on the money for the count of one, two, three. A great win for the youngsters. Sting's got to face Sid Vicious at Halloween Havoc. Here's what he had to say about it. Everybody saw the class here on TBS. You saw it. Sid Vicious from behind trying to come for this world title. He says he wants me. He says he wants the world title. I'm going to throw it up in the air just like this. It's for grabs between you and me, Sid.
just something that sticks in the back of my mind every time I see it and hear it. And if I can watch it one more time, I just feel like it's on the tip of my tongue, Rossi. If you fans just joined us, we were talking to Sting a little bit earlier. He asked to see the very first statement made by the Black Scorpion. And, and Bob, as we've talked about throughout the program, we have literally racked yep. our brains to try to find out the identity of the Black Scorpion. But I can tell you, it's not bothering us. And Steve I'm saying this with all brains, I've got to get in the ring with this guy. There yeah. you go. That's what yeah. I, my point right there. That's right. It's bothering Sting a lot more than it's bothering us. Sting, but I, and we mentioned earlier also, we think he may be beginning to have some emotional effect on you, not knowing who this guy is. He's playing mind games with you. Oh, you know, I've had a lot of title matches, big matches against Ric Flair and other people, and you get a certain kind of goosebump or chill that runs up and down your spine, but that's a good one, and I can deal with that. But another kind of cheer running up and down my spine right now. I was thinking about this guy because I don't know who the heck he is yeah. or why he wants hey, me. I was thinking, Jim, you know, he could be following him around all week long. The guy could be following you wherever you go. He could be right behind well, you. Well, he seems weird yeah. enough to do that, you know, with or without the mask. He says I won't recognize him, but he was somebody that I know from 1986. So it's, it's driving me. I got to admit it. He's got me running. He's got me thinking, you know. Well, I tell you, you know, it's unfortunate that on October the 27th, you got to wrestle Sid Vicious for the heavyweight championship. The big pay-per-view spectacular called Halloween Havoc. Man. Unfortunately, you're not going to be able to focus strictly on Sid Vicious. As if I don't have enough to think about already with the Black Scorpion. And now Sid Vicious, who's not just another guy, not just another contender. I mean, this guy just seems to be mowing right over everybody in the NWA with the help of the horseman, whatever. I don't know. But the guy is definitely a force. Indeed he is. And Tim Horner has certainly shown that he's a force right here. Nice drop kick on Snake Watson. Tim Horner in a very competitive match. At, on the power hour this past Friday night with uh, Flying Brian as Horner was the first challenger in the running of the gauntlet. And Flying Brian, of course, will take on Dan Spivey this Sunday night on the main event. Nice move there by Horner. He may have him, and he does. You think we got this? We got the tape. Bob, tell us about the uh, replay here. We've got that tape queued up and ready to go. All right, fans, again, take a look at it as Horner now is going to run Watson into the rope. Got to roll him up, coming off of the rope. The count of one, two, three. There it is. Horner, the winner. Hey, I want to see that tape, Jim. Fans, let's all listen to it. Sting is here. This is the very first statement made to the public by the Black Scorpion. Sting, are you listening? <laughs> of course you are. You're too much of a hero and a champion to refuse to hear this tape. I am going to destroy you. A long time has passed since you last saw me. Oh, yes, you know me. Or at least you did. But don't try to track me down. It won't help. Even if you saw my face in light, you wouldn't recognize me. My face doesn't look the same. Curious. Oh, I imagine you are. Of course you are. I want you to be thinking, be concerned, maybe even a little scared. Soon, I intend for you to be terrified. Think back. Who could it be? They would hate you enough to want to see you, a broken and defeated man. Maybe a little clue will help. How about California in 86? Think about it, Sting. 
December 5th at the Clash at Mountain Madness. I'll be there waiting. All right, there you have it. The original statement made here on World Championship Wrestling by the Black Scorpion. Does anything strike a chord? Can you remember nothing, anything? Nothing, nothing, Jim. I, I, I've looked at it so many times, I can't figure this thing out. It comes so close, and then it just disappears again. I think I'm just... I'm, I'm trying too hard is what I'm doing. I'm under too much pressure to try and figure this thing out because a lot of people are asking me who he is, and I'm under a lot of pressure. I can't figure it out. It's just it's so close, though. We'll keep our eye on I'm sure that it is. We'll keep our eye on this development, yeah. and we'll be back on TBS after this. The Black Scorpion. While the myth of the scorpion has been beaten to death by just about every major site show on the net, there's no way that we can't delve just a little bit deeper into the monstrosity known as Ole Anderson's booking. Here's what went down and what happened. The Black Scorpion. The days following the Great American Bash were a mixed bag for WCW. While they were elated to have the title on the hottest young wrestler their roster has ever seen for years, they were also well aware of the fact that a babyface champion needed credible heel threats in order to be taken seriously. This coupled with the fact that Sting's initial house show tour as his champion didn't quite draw the numbers that WCW was expecting, pushed Ole Anderson to basically concoct an idea so poorly conceived and so terribly enacted that it ultimately ended, ended up costing him his job and his good name. Let's talk about the angle. Shortly after the Great American Bash, a mysterious mass wrestler appeared and began giving creepy monologues directed towards Sting. Each week, a vignette of the Black Scorpion would air. And each week, it would be more over the top than the week preceding it. The scorpion would appear each week in a dark, cloudy room and give a long soliloquy to Sting. Each week, the the promos would get more and more bizarre. The black scorpion claimed to be a figure from Sting's past and made repeated threats towards Sting. They weren't your everyday threats, though. Not from the Scorpion. They were always family-friendly death threats. Such gems as... Sting! Sid Vicious! He wants your title. I... I want your life! And always appropriate... Prepare to die, Sting! Rattled the airwaves as long-time wrestling fans turned their heads in shame from the nonsense... That was the Black Scorpion. All over the wrestling world, the true identity of the Black Scorpion was hotly debated. From everyone from the Ultimate Warrior to Scott Wolf to independent wrestler, the Angel of Death was believed to be the man behind the mask. But in typical WCW fashion, there was one major unresolved problem. Ole had no idea who the Black Scorpion was either. He had no one to plug into the role of the Black Scorpion. Okay, let's review this, shall we? Ole goes on television each week with a dark hood and a voice box and gives promos as the Scorpion, making more and more obscure 
obscure references each week and narrowing down the true possible identity of the true Scorpion further and further with each inane soliloquy. Oli repeatedly made absurd statements like, Remember California in 86. And didn't even take the time to say, Hmm, who's this guy going to be? Strange booking, to say the least, I'd say. In late September and early October, Sting would go on to have several matches with who he thought to be the Black Scorpion. Each time Sting would have the Scorpion pinned, the real Scorpion would emerge from the curtains or appear over the arena intercom to heckle Sting. Not only did the Scorpion's body size change on a daily basis, varying from bone-thin to decidedly chunky, but even more ridiculously, his race changed from black to white without even a passing mention from the announce team. A match was finally made between the two at the December Starcade event. But by this point, three months was sounding like a mighty long time to wait for this feud to wind down. I remember sitting watching on television saying, why are, they, why are these, these scorpions looking so different? It didn't make sense to me. The legend of the Scorpion continued to get stranger as time passed, eventually culminating in some ridiculously asinine stuff so hokey and corny that you're almost missing out if you haven't seen it, like a wrestle crap type of stuff. With this in mind, we pressed forward to the November edition of the hot TBS series Clash of the Champions, which I always loved. Sting was set to be interviewed early into the broadcast discussing his upcoming Starcade match with the Black Scorpion. But as Sting was set to be interviewed, though, the Scorpion's voice mysteriously appeared over the arena's loudspeakers. Sting was threatened heavily with the Scorpion claiming that the worst was yet to come tonight. How ironic, yet sadly true, that very statement would prove to be. Later on in the broadcast... Paul E. Dangerously came out to once again interview the Stinger. This is where things turn laughably bad. The Scorpion emerged from the crowd, donning a black mask and a long black cape. Does the Scorpion attack Sting, you ask? Of course not, silly Mark. Does the Scorpion try to steal Sting's title belt? Don't be ridiculous, Cousin Matty. The Scorpion has something far more insidious up his sleeve. Our friend the Scorpion snatched a terrified member from the crowd and sat him down in a chair. As the man looked on helplessly and frightened, the Scorpion removed a magic box from his sack of tricks and heinously placed it on the man's head. What next, you ask? He spun the man's head in circles, of course. After the trick was complete, the kids clapped. The man laughed and shook his head as if to say, Good one, Scorp. And the black scorpion made balloon animals for the kids. Actually, after the trick was completed, the audience laughed and Sting did a questionable, at best, acting job trying to convey the extreme terror that the cheap excuse for a magician turned wrestler had instilled in his heart. While the last trick was awe-inspiring in every sense of the word, Awe-inspiring. The Black Scorpion was far from a one-trick pony, my friends. What he had in store next for our friend with 
the twisted head was far more malicious, far more insipid, and far more asinine. The scorpion proceeded to walk over to a nearby animal cage that had been magically sitting near the ramp for the entire broadcast. Why no one questioned the exact logistics of having an animal cage at ringside early on in the show is beyond me, beyond the bell. But let's face it, it was probably much better that way. I don't want to hear any excuses. Imagine if Michael Cole was there. The scorpion held the hand of the lucky audience member and placed him inside of the conveniently placed animal cage. Yes, once again I said animal cage. The curtain was drawn upwards, rapid movement was seen behind the curtain as if to hint that something magical was going on, and suddenly the curtain dropped, revealing a tiger in place of the man. Ooh, mystical, right? The scorpion cast one more decidedly spooky look in the direction of the champ before jumping into the cage, pulling the curtain, and disappearing himself, not to be seen again until Starcade. The time had come, this was it, zero hour. Starcade 1990 was upon us. And up until the very last minute, there was no one suitable to play the part of the Black Scorpion. How's that for booking yourself into a corner, huh? It's hard to accurately convey just how strange this whole situation really was. WCW had been building and hyping a match between Sting and the mysterious Black Scorpion for nearly six months, with the catch being that if the Scorpion lost, he'd have to unmask. The final blow-off was just days away, and WCW had no idea who was going to play the Black Scorpion. With D-Day upon them, Ole Anderson and Jim Hurd were forced to do the last thing on Earth they ever wanted to do. Go to Ric Flair with their tails between their legs and beg him to bail him out once again. Flair was not happy about the situation and felt that the angle would further do what Hurd and Anderson had secretly attempting to do for the better part of a year. Bury the nature boy. Nevertheless, Flair did what was necessary for the company. Flair did what his promotion needed him to do. Ric Flair took a hit for the team because he loved WCW and lived and died by its success. In return for taking part in the stupidity, Flair was promised a title reign in the future, and the wheels were set in motion for WCW's biggest pay-per-view of the calendar year, Starcade. Now, I know we're talking about Halloween Havoc, but we're talking about the spooky characters this month via the Halloween theme, and the Scorpion character was really spawned and promoted during Halloween Havoc, so that's why we'll continue the Scorpion uh, storyline, for lack of a better term, further into Starcade. So this is an extension of Halloween Havoc. The final blow-off between Sting and the Black Scorpion was much worse than could have ever been imagined. The live crowd did not buy the nonsense for one second, especially after the match introductions took place. Sting made his way to the ring slowly and more methodically than he'd ever done before, obviously looking a little shaken by the mass magician. The Black Scorpion had the worst entrance in wrestling history this night, floating to the ring in a flying spaceship of ludicrous proportions, fans, in a scene so ridiculous that WCW has edited out of the commercial releases of Starcade 1990. Four cardboard UFOs lowered from the ceiling of the once-sacred Keel Auditorium after the four crudely spray-painted space vessels fell from the ceiling, the mothership emerged from the entranceway, carrying none other than the real Black Scorpion. 
as the steel cage finally locked behind both men, one of the worst main events in history of, in the history of Starcade began. The match was one-sided with the Scorpion getting his behind kicked all over the place and managing to do oh so subtly or performed oh so subtly every single Ric Flair trademark spot. Sting eventually pinned the Scorpion following a cross body block off the top of the ro- off the top rope, but as Sting attempted to amass the Black Scorpion, several other Black Scorpions climbed the cage to attack Sting. As the Sting the Stinger battled the Imposter Scorpions, Arn Anderson and Barry Windham rushed to the ring to lock the cage trapping Sting inside with five hungry masked men. Seemingly out of nowhere, Sting casually rips the mask off the real Black Scorpion, revealing Ric Flair was behind the magic tricks all along. Oh, that guy. Believe it or not, immediately after Flair was amassed, the entire fiasco never was never again mentioned on WCW programming. Never. And that sums up the Black Scorpion. Right now, I want to play, take, or play a clip courtesy of our video of where Ole Anderson discussed or gave his version of the storyline entitled The Black Scorpion. Whose idea was it for the uh, Black Scorpion? Where was that going to go? We look at the crib, look at the ring. When you see the Black Scorpion, now you'll know who the real champion is. What exactly uh, was the storyline? good enough? It was good. good. Do you remember that? Okay. (laughs) I screw off camera and do that, you know, about it. I did it just as a joke and a half. Heard was after me because he didn't like the damn card that I put together for a bunch of matches. And he said, didn't like him, didn't like him, didn't like him, didn't like him. I said, I said, that's what's got to be. That's all. Well, he said, he wanted to see something else. He said, they like all that damn crap that you got on that damn card. So I went back to my office and I wrote down Black Scorpion and Stanger, who the hell ever was. Right. And one or two of the names. And I handed that damn card back to him. He said, now you're learning because I put down the black scorpion. Right. He thought that was the answer. And I didn't even know what the hell a black scorpion was going to be. I had no idea. No idea at all. So what I did to begin with, if you ever saw the, I don't think I got a taste of it, yeah. I just had everybody dress up, put a mask or whatever it might be, and called them the black scorpion. And then I went off camera, uh, you know, with a right. microphone. Bro, sting. You know, and did my little BS. And that's how we worked the black scorpion. But when he fired me, finally... The Black Scorpion had only been in effect for about maybe a month, a month and a half. And it was getting over, for Christ's sake. That was the funny thing about it. I, I thought it would... Right. And I did a couple double deals up in Cleveland, I think it was, or maybe it was Columbus. I don't remember which it was. But I did a deal where one guy was dressed up like the Black Scorpion, and he disappeared. I had a guy who was a magician. I forgot how the hell he did all that crap. Right. But the guy just disappeared. And there he was on the stage automatically. Another guy dressed up as a black scorpion. Right. But the people thought, holy balls, you know. Here he was right there in the ring, and he just disappeared. And he showed up over there. They thought there was really something. I thought, well, I hated the idea to begin with, but it was my idea. I said, it's working. People are buying it. Piss on it. Let it go. Who did you uh, actually want to put in, in that mask in the end? I can't tell you exactly what I was thinking. But I know this, Dusty screwed everything up. Just, he took it, and for me. I don't remember all the different things I was going to do, but I had some really involved bullshit to begin with. And I think one of the first things I was doing was that it was Rick, right? Yeah, it turned out to be Rick in the cage. No, 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 that was, that was Dusty's shit. Right. 
Who was he working with? With anybody who was a Black Scorpion? Who was he working with? Anybody in particular? No, the whole program was supposed to be built around Sting. Okay. Well, I was going to have Sting then pull that mask off, and whoever it was going to be. Not Ric Flair. That, that, Ric Flair, that was Dusty. He, just, he screwed everything up. I was going to have him pull a mask off. And whoever it was, everybody think that's the guy. It might it'll be just you or anybody. Don't right. them. And then you'd hear once again, Well, Sting, we fooled you once again. Or whatever the hell I was going to do. Right. And then have the real Black Scorpion, supposedly, show up on the stage or wherever, and Sting looking at the guy and realizing now he's made a mistake that he didn't really get the real Black Scorpion. Right. So he's got the same damn problems he's always had. Gotcha. And I don't remember all the different things I was going to do, but I had a whole bunch of crap. And Ric Flair, I mean, uh, Dusty Rhodes came out and just made it Ric Flair and that was all. Yeah. And it just ended. There is only one Black Scorpion, and there is the man that we have waited to finally see in the ring with the heavyweight champion. If he fails to win the title tonight, he must unmask. The Black Scorpion was a character that Ole Anderson thought of. I don't know where Ole, he must have been high that day. And Ole doesn't get high, so I'm still not sure where he got came from. But the guy, I won't even mention his name because it's so insignificant, that was supposed to be the Black Scorpion, decided before he was supposed to make his first appearance that he didn't want to do business. This is the real Black Scorpion. No more messengers, no more tricks. One-on-one -on -one in a cage, and finally we're going to either find out who he is, or this guy becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. The Black Scorpion is Ric Flair! It's Nature Boy Ric Flair! Sting won the title! The Black Scorpion was Nature Boy Ric Flair! I was the Black Scorpion in St. Louis, in the ring that night, and in the hotel till 7 a.m., brother. <laughs> Sting, it's me, the Black Scorpion. That was another... <laughs> a tragic moment in my life. Terrible. And everybody knew it was me. Didn't matter. It was terrible. The whole setup. In the annual large show, again, there's a, a Starcade uh, where you came as a masked, you were the Black Scorpion, mm -hmm. and you, uh, you know, ended this uh, this whole Black Scorpion storyline with Sting. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you were originally supposed to be the Black Scorpion. No, I was supposed to be in a tag match that Iron and Barry had with Doom. We had no, we had no. Al Perez quit. He was going to be the Black Scorpion. Did he not do this role just because he, he was told that he was going to be losing at the end of the match? Was That's it? what I was told. I don't know. I didn't have the conversation with him. Whatever, the, whatever his decision was, it was the wrong decision. He just figured in. You know? Well, from, the, from the moment it started... The, the, with only doing the voices over the thing, did you did, did you cringe and think what a, what a bad idea this was? Yep. And how long before the Starcade match did they inform you that you would be? No, I volunteered for it. Oh, you volunteered? Yeah. Just to try to make the best of a bad situation. Well, it was either me or Barry. You know, I just said, why why put Barry in that role? I mean, in other words, it wasn't going to hurt me. It just hurt me mentally. It wasn't going to hurt me, Rick Flair. But it didn't didn't do anything to upset the flow of my career but you know Arn we had Arn and Tully Arn and Barry were both hot right and uh, I think they wanted Barry to do it and put Arn me in a tag match and I said no I'll just be the Black Scorpion I'll just make it easy because I had good chemistry with Sting you know 
you would either hide me or hide Barry. How could you hide Barry? I mean, you couldn't hide me, so how are you going to hide Barry? Right. And, uh, you know, it would have left Barry with no with nothing to do afterwards. Just left me in the middle of more controversy. In re- I mean, in a good way. Not for me personally, but didn't hurt my persona in the business. Just hurt me personally. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. As we relive the history of World Championship Wrestling, you can supplement your WCW experience with the High Spots Wrestling Network. What name is synonymous with WCW? The Nature Boy Ric Flair, of course. Well, on the High Spots Network, you can watch the shoot interview of a lifetime with the Nature Boy himself. Over 10 hours of in-depth interviews, stories, and so much more from the legendary 16-time world champion. Use the promo code BTB in all caps, and new accounts will receive one free month of the High Spots Wrestling Network and gain access to over 2,000 hours of premium wrestling content. Relive WCW's greatest star on the High Spots Wrestling Network. You're listening to the Retro Wrestling Podcast, Beyond the Bell. You can listen to Beyond the Bell on iTunes, Player.fm, the SNS Radio Network, Podbay.fm, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and our official website, btbcast.com. Connect socially on Facebook and Twitter at btbcast. Watch retro videos on our official YouTube channel, btbcast network. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be sent to contact at btbcast.com go old school with beyond the bell well trick-or-treaters we wrap up the first two years in Halloween Havoc history. Research courtesy of Soli's Vintage Wrestling, the Mid-Atlantic Gateway, the PW Torch, the Wrestling Observer Newsletter, WWE.com, and the Pro Wrestling Encyclopedia. Audio courtesy of the WWE Network, WWE.com, YouTube, and HighSpots.com. We continue on our haunted hayride on the next edition of Beyond the Bell as we relive 1991 through 1994 in Halloween Havoc history. Until then, this is your old school spooktacular host, Sean Beckerman, signing off. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bell. Remember to always keep it old school, my friends.